Welcome to the Policy Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Patrice, writer, political science master's graduate, and dirty martini enthusiast. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking social, political, economic, and environmental issues as they relate specifically to policy from both regional and global perspectives with the simple goal of discussing solutions and systems that put people before politics. Fair warning, sometimes the content is intense and we drop some F-bombs. Thanks for listening in and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Policy Out Loud's second full episode, the episode where I go out of order for what I had intended to make my next podcast and talk about a conversation I had recently that was really hard for me. And because I think it's so important, um, I'm going to invite you into it. So before I get started, though, and we'll talk about that conversation here a little bit, you're actually going to get to listen to it. Um, But before I get started, I'm going to go ahead and shamelessly plug myself because I am new. And if you like, comment, share, or follow, or I suppose leave a review, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, that would be wonderful. Your support helps me to get the word out to more people and it helps me to grow. So if you like what you're listening to, shameless plug, go ahead and do some sort of something. I would really appreciate it. So back to the episode. In this episode, I'm talking to you about something that I have sincerely struggled to find the words for, and that is how we talk about cultures that are not our own. So last week, I did an interview with Sue Van Rays of Boulder Nutrition on her podcast, Satiate. If you haven't checked it out, I would definitely recommend it. As a person who has worked with Sue for the last year, I highly recommend her platform. It's Sue's goal to help heal the feminine through food, mind-body connection, and pleasure. And as a person who has worked with her for the last year, I can tell you that it's all truly excellent. Um, So, on to the conversation. As you may or may not know, my husband and I are currently stationed in Germany, and I was recently talking to Sue about what it's like to be stationed in Germany and um, Operation Allies Refuge and how that's impacted our family and what the camps look like and what the, the camps are short of. And we were getting into a full conversation about this, and she invited me to guest on her podcast last week. So that's the interview that you're going to get to listen to in the second half of this podcast. Now, though this podcast was actually recorded about a week ago, it's already a little out of date. We're now moving out of Operation Allies Refuge, which was the name of the evacuation mission, into Operation Allies Welcome, which is the name of the effort to support vulnerable Afghans as they transition into the United States. If you're interested in getting more information on this, go ahead and check out the Homeland Security page. There's ways that you can get involved and get information about where our Afghan refugees are going and how you can assist in that. Um, So definitely check that out. So before we get into listening to the interview that I did with Sue, I actually want to talk about that interview. So Sue runs an amazing interview, and I was really happy to have the opportunity to speak with her on her podcast. But what I hear in my own voice as I listen to the podcast feed, something that you may or may not pick up on when you listen, is that I actually have a lot of uncertainty talking about some of the cultural nuances that I'm personally still learning about in regard to Afghan people and Muslim culture, specifically when it comes to the conversation regarding women's comprehensive health and clothing clothing items, specifically the hijab. So you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a second, I've seen your podcast picture. I've seen your blog. You don't wear a hijab. It's not your lane. Well, yes, I know. (laughs) It's not my lane. And I want to talk about that. So the traveler camps, um, I've been to the traveler camps. And um, what I can tell you is that the camps are extremely short of hijabs, which is a culturally significant item to our Afghan refugees and and travelers. Uh, As you listen to the podcast more, you'll understand why I interchange between those two words. But I was trying to talk about an item that's culturally significant and why it's an important item to be provided to our Afghan partners in an effort to make sure that these items are made available. But trust me, I understand it's not my lane. I'll put it to you straight. This part of the conversation was actually really hard for me to find the right words for. 
As an American woman with different cultural and spiritual practices, I didn't want to misrepresent a walk in life I've never walked or values I don't fully understand, which is pretty much the only thing that you can do when you talk about a walk in life that's not your own. You're not going to to represent it fully or accurately. But at the same time, I wanted to find a way to help our Afghan partners because they haven't had a platform to speak their needs yet. And because their needs are imminent, we don't have enough hijabs or underwear in these Afghan traveler camps. And these items are going to be really important to donate as they migrate into the United States. As a person who's witnessed part of their journey firsthand, I can speak to the fact that some of their needs have not been adequately met. Now, when I tell you that their needs are not being adequately met, I don't mean anything like food and water and shelter. That wouldn't be an accurate reflection of what is being provided to them. But there is cultural competency that goes into providing adequate care to people whose culture is not like our own culture. And this is what I want to make sure that we're talking about. So as I listen to some of the feedback on my own speech with Sue, I feel like I awkwardly stumble through parts of the conversation trying to talk about the importance of something that I'm still learning the importance of as I try to raise awareness for our incoming partners who are going to need supplies and they're going to need a welcoming and gracious place to land. So this brings me to the part of the interview where we talk about hijabs. Again, they were frightfully in short supply in the traveler camps, but they serve a really important purpose in the lives of Afghan women and in Muslim culture. And the reason they're in short supply is because most of the people donating to the camps aren't Muslim, and therefore we didn't think to donate this article of clothing. This is going to be something that we're probably going to see in the United States as well. Our Afghan partners are moving from a country that is 99.7% Muslim to a country that has less than 1% Muslim um, culture represented within it. And so making sure that these items are available is important for a lot of reasons, but first and foremost, because it's an item that they value that is significant to their culture. In trying to convey the importance of making culturally appropriate items available, Sue and I had to talk about the hijab, but it's not something that I've ever worn because it's not part of my own practice. So it was a little hard for me to adequately convey their full importance. But here's where I get tripped up. In talking about the hijab, there were a couple of things I desperately wanted to steer clear of. The first is that I didn't want to misrepresent the people whom I was speaking about, which is, again, something that we're going to do when we talk about a life that's not our own. Or worse, I didn't want to say something that was Islamophobic or encourages Islamophobia. That narrative already runs thick in our country. Misrepresenting an Islamic garment important to the social and religious fibers of Islam would only aid in creating an Islamophobic narrative. Creating a divide between people or misrepresenting someone else's values or walk in life goes entirely against my own values. But on the flip side, I didn't want to talk about the hijab in a way that suggested I was victim blaming. To suggest that this item is merely important for women's safety not only diminishes the importance of the item of clothing that has a deeper value, but it implies that it's the responsibility of the woman to wear it so that she isn't harmed. Regardless of whatever culture it is that we're discussing, I can't promote that women's safety is the burden of women. The myth that there's a correlation between being properly covered and a low incidence rate of sexual harassment and violence against women actually systematically victimizes women. It also encourages underreporting because it suggests that abuse is in some way deserved by women who are not properly covered. This is also a message I didn't want to promote. I didn't want to promote either of these messages. I wanted to talk about how we can better support our Afghan partners and why this is important because it is important, without misrepresenting our partner's walk in life, or worse, saying something Islamophobic or that victimizes women. And thus, this conversation was really hard for me, because there's so much that goes into the conversation in terms of accurately representing what we're talking about, making sure that my language aligns with what I intend to say and our values, and making sure that our partners are represented the way that they deserve to be represented. 
But this is where I want to pause the conversation. And I want to talk about why it was hard for me to talk about this. Because discussing how we talk about cultures and have honest talk about why it's hard for us to have conversations about cultures that are not our own is really important. Talking about how we talk about culture that is not our own and people from walks of life that have not experienced the same things that we have is really important because it shapes how we interact with cultures and people we perceive as different from ourselves. How we speak shapes thought and our thoughts shape actions and our our actions shape how we experience this life together and treat one another. It even shapes how policies are established as we're doing right now in our country as we prepare for our incoming Afghan partners. It's important for us to talk about how we talk about human issues in relationship to cultural nuance, especially in cultures that are not our own. So in order for me to paint the importance of this picture, I'm going to use an example from my own life where I learned the importance of language in how we talk about people and culture. I wanna iterate before I jump into this story that I tell you this story to convey a time that I learned the importance of language in talking about a culture from which I had never walked. I am not trying to draw lines of similarity between our Afghan partners and the people about whom I'm about to speak. So a few years ago, I was working as a county supervisor for an organization that advocated on behalf of children who had been abused and neglected. In this role, I worked with children children in the foster care system, volunteers, foster parents, biological family members, social workers, lawyers, juvenile officers, judges, and community stakeholders. So I was really plugged into the community. A typical day in this job didn't really exist, but the average day included at least a couple of hours working with volunteers, family members, and children who had been removed from their homes. We worked in private settings talking about the actions that had happened to these children that brought our families to the table and how to move forward so that families could be safely reunited with children or so that children could find permanency. During my time in this job, I came to work with families, and this is a bit of a trigger warning for some of our listeners, but I came to work with families that were drug addicted, families who were selling drugs, families who were active KKK members, I worked with parents who had physically, emotionally, and sexually abused their own children, and I worked with parents who had trafficked their own children. This list goes on. When I first started this job, I can tell you candidly, I was really upset by some of what I read had happened to these children in the files that I was given. I didn't know that any of this, I don't want to say I didn't know that this existed because that's not true, but I didn't know to what degree abuse and neglect could exist. And now my day-to-day job was focused on working on this. In the two years, however, that I worked this job, I came to have a real heart for the people I was working with, some of whom were people whose actions caused me to be truly sick when I first started this job. I didn't develop a heart for these people because I in any way condoned what had happened to bring them to the table, but because getting to know these families better, I came to learn how broken homes family histories of abuse and drug addiction, how lack of access to mental health assistance and rehabilitation had shaped the lives of the parents in such a way that it trickled down to the treatment of their children. In understanding the people, my language and my thinking began to change. I began to look at the people I was working with, not as the enemy to good that I had made them out to be when I first walked into the job, because I can tell you, when I walked into the job, I walked in with quite a bit of judgment. I instead began to look at the systems in place that had failed to serve and protect these parents when they themselves were children, to the policies failing to meet the needs of these individuals because the policies are not written with stakeholder participation or representation or comprehensive understanding. I began to look at how the state prioritized spending and how it was clear that these families were not part of the priority. I began to think critically about how the system dynamically discludes them and how the way we talk about these issues shaped how, cre- how we created support and policy and what tools and supplies were made available to these families. In this job, I learned that language shapes policy. How we talk about cultures shapes our understanding and our understanding shapes how we treat people, not only in our direct communication with one another, but through policies, programs, initiatives, and funding. Now, 
Again, I want to reiterate that I've told you this story because it conveys a time in my life where I learned the importance of how we talk about cultures and people from different walks of life. Not to imply in any way that our travelers have anything in common with the individuals with whom I worked and that I describe in my story. I want to be extremely crystal clear on that. But this time that I learned the importance of language and the importance of how we talk to people and about people and how that shapes funding and how that shapes policy and how that shapes our interactions, it's why I'm so sensitive to how I talk about hijabs in the upcoming interview. When I tell you about the line of work that I come from, I tell you because I learned how to engage conversations about social values when the value hierarchy was different from the hierarchy I established for myself and how learning how to do this taught me how to see people outside of how I see myself. And more than how, I learned why doing that is important. It's important because the way that we talk about other cultures shapes how we prioritize people's needs. How we talk about people that have shared in a different walk in life than we have experienced shapes how we develop policy. How we talk about people determines how we spend money on meeting people's needs. How we talk about people affects whether or not we see their needs at all. How we talk about them determines how we donate and how we support and how we include and how we create systems and tools to help our partners. How we talk about our incoming partners matters. It matters because it shapes how we support and donate and understand, welcome and interact with our incoming Afghan partners. It matters because they come from a walk in life where their family structure or the clothing or the religious practices are different and our language signifies how we respect them. One of the things we will need to remember is our partners come from a walk in life shaped by forces we don't understand. Language also shapes how we problem solve with our partners should problems arise. How we talk about our partners is important because it shapes not only how we act with our newcomers, but how we create systems that help them to succeed in integrating into the fabric of our own very diverse country. I was about to say community. Individual communities as well. That's true. Communities, countries, all levels. In this upcoming interview... I struggle to talk about a culture that's not my own. And it has nothing to do with how amazing this interview was because we had the opportunity to talk about what the front line of foreign policy looks like on the ground, to raise awareness for our incoming Afghan partners, and that's a beautiful thing. But as I listen to my own audio feedback, I kind of make this like noise in my head where I think to myself, ah, I didn't get my words out the way I wanted to. And I think that's a really important thing to talk about because I don't think I'm alone in this. It's why I get uncomfortably raw in admitting that I know these things are hard to talk about, especially when we're talking about cultures and walks in life that we don't understand. I don't even think I fully get it right in the upcoming interview, despite my best efforts. But as hard as it may be, it's really important that we find ways to do so because the way that we talk about cultures that are not our own has the power to impact people's lives. It has the power to affect policy. It has the power to affect our decisions. It has the power to affect how we interact with one another. And in our beautiful and diverse country, how we talk about cultures that are not our own is so important because it shapes policy. We are now all faced with the same challenge and opportunity to learn how to talk about one another and with one another as almost every state in the United States will have incoming Afghan partners. But this conversation isn't limited just to our Afghan partners. It's inclusive of how we talk about each other. People of all walks of life, of all belief systems, of all choices made within their their homes and their communities and their cultures and their values. The word other has become so prevalent and predominant in our language that I don't even think that we realize that we're doing it anymore. And so talking about how we talk about other people, quote, air quoting the word other, how we talk about other people matters. Because while I use the example of the work that I did or how I struggled to talk about our incoming Afghan partners walk in life and making sure that their needs are met, 
that same concept is applicable in how we talk about our compatriots. Because how we talk about our neighbors, our compatriots, states on the other side of the country that don't have the same voting patterns as us, it affects how we vote and how we develop policy and how we develop systems that meet the needs of our compatriots. And that's important. Learning how to talk about these issues truly impacts people. And that matters. And on that note, um, we are going to go ahead and listen to last week's interview with Sue Van Rays on Traveler Camps. I hope you enjoy, and I will see you back here soon for our next episode. Thank you so much for joining me on Satiate today, Taylor. What a treat to have you as our special guest. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you. So I just want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you're doing amazing work in the world on so many levels and you have some interesting skills and some interesting locations. And I would just (laughs) love to hear a little bit more about, about you in that way and what you are doing in this day-to-day life these days. Well, um, so these days, um, I've been in the process of getting my um, blog and podcast up off the ground. Um, It's Policy Out Loud. And what I'm focusing on is writing about um, global, foreign, national and international policy, and the way in which we're approaching problems that we're seeing in the world, and, and not just what that approach looks like, but what the second and third order of what the second and third order effects of the way in which we approach problems looks like. Um, So I've been doing this for the last, I think I've been spending the last about year getting this up off the ground. Uh, The blog has existed for a while, but refocusing on this niche has kind of come at a unique time in in my life as we're living here in Germany. Um, As as my husband and I are are stationed here in Germany, um, we're an active duty family. So um, we are kind of in our day-to-day life, the front line of foreign policy. And so as Americans who are living abroad and have been doing so for the last several years, we've had this kind of very unique opportunity to see how different countries are approaching problems, problems that we all are sharing and all are kind of facing the burden of, but are having to address in different ways. And so in that kind of transition from living as an American and having lived in so many different pockets of my own country and then moving abroad. Um, And as a person who has studied policy, I kind of looked at this and said, oh my gosh, we have to kind of restructure what that conversation looks like because we're not having it in a way that is particularly effective. And so um, that's what I do. I focus on kind of making complex policy a little bit more comprehensible to, to readers and listeners who want to be part of the solution to all the problems we're seeing. Absolutely. One thing that's so interesting to me about your work and your lifestyle is that there's some really interesting like interweavings between the work you do with policy and that you're living on a military base in Germany, seeing some things firsthand. So do you have any comments on that? That's just such an interesting marriage of these two different aspects of your life. It is. um, And it's, it's kind of always been a really interesting thing to watch evolve um, because in our time in the military, we've, we've lived in a time with the military that has been relatively peaceful, um, but we've also had the opportunity to see things like Operation Allies Refuge take place, which is, um, of, of course, what we've been seeing on the news is um, as our, our Afghan partners have been airlifted out of Afghanistan as we've pulled out of the nation, um, so we're getting to kind of see some of that that firsthand as as well as kind of all the other humanitarian work that goes into um, military life. It's when we got into this life, we kind of thought, oh, it's going to be war. And what we learned very quickly is um, military life is like 80 percent humanitarian work. And so um, and we've, we've had the opportunity to kind of see that evolve, not only in the most recent events that we're seeing on the news, but kind of have been able to watch that transpire over the last seven years of our time as an active duty couple. Wow. Amazing. So one of the things that sparked this podcast episode was a conversation that you and I had 
um, recently about some of the volunteer work you're doing. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I know that we're going to get into the specifics um, with what Allied Refuge is and what it looks like and all of the different aspects that that involves. But I would love to just hear like what it is you're doing in that volunteer work that you could share because it just really struck a chord with me that we needed to get the word out to the masses um, that there's ways we can all pitch in and help that maybe we didn't even realize. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> when we had this conversation last week, it's so funny that this was such like an off the cuff conversation and we were both sitting there like, oh my gosh, <laughs> we can talk about this. Um, and, you know, over here, military life, especially for those stationed overseas, has had to require a lot of rapid movement very quickly um, because of where we're geographically located and in, in relationship to what we've seen as we've pulled out of Afghanistan. So our troops over here have had to mobilize very quickly in response to, to everything that's happened. Um, but what we often think of in terms of these operations is that our troops mobilize, which they do, and they have to do so rapidly and they're trained to do so. Um, but it requires the, the whole community, the, the entire military community to truly invest in what's happening because um, as our troops are, are trained to do things like safety and security, to provide medical care, to build tents and to provide clean water and sanitation, there's all of these other sort of moving pieces that are required in order to provide kind of this comprehensive support within our communities, especially to those that are being evacuated from Afghanistan over to, over to Germany and to all the other places that they're going. Um, so the capacity in which I've worked um, is I've been helping to collect um, both money and donations to provide to the locations that have camps um, for our travelers. And I, I'm gonna kind of interchange between the word refugee and traveler. Um, refugee is the word that we're familiar with. Traveler is the word that we have to use over here due to specific EU policies and what legal um, rights are given based on the word. So I may interchange between those words and they, they are to symbolize the same people. But um, what I've done is been collecting um, money as well as items. And that money that has been collected has been used specifically to go out and help to backfill the needs of these camps. Um, a lot of what has been provided by places like the Red Cross and the military are things like um, food, water, um, a place to lay their head, um, basic hygiene items. But many of these people who have been airlifted out of Afghanistan were airlifted with nothing. They had absolutely no time to prepare. And after having had the opportunity to speak with some of these, these travelers and refugees, they, they really came with nothing. And so those of us that are volunteering kind of as, as military spouses um, and are getting involved in this are also helping to um, run the sites where people are able to come and get clothing and to get hygiene items and to come get shoes and baby items and cold weather clothing. We've been helping to outfit our Afghan um, refugees. So that's the, those are the kind of the two capacities within which I've, I've helped. Yeah. So I want to dig into this a little bit, but I have this spontaneous question for you, which is, you know, what is the, what's the tone? Like, what's the vibe when you go into these camps right now? Like, what are you seeing from these people? So with respect to the limitations that I've had within the camp, because there's certain levels of mobility that aren't allowed to me just for safety and security purposes, with my interaction, the impression that I have gotten um, is that this has been a very hard transition for, for our Afghan people. Um, I think one of the things that we often don't realize when we think of all of these people that are coming in is that we think to ourselves, oh, well, they're poor. They already, they were inherently poor. They already were poor we're giving them things, but that's not an accurate reflection of all of the people that have moved. Some of them were middle-class, some of them were upper-class, some of them have lost everything. Some of them had, they had full, well-furnished lives and, and they had everything that they needed. And they chose to help the Americans while we were in Afghanistan. 
And then they became a target because of that, that aid that they gave us and they lost everything. We also have people, we have every, we have people from all walks of life and demographics. We also have people who have not come from much and you can see um, visibly the kind of chaos that kind of creates in people having things that they need, having things that they want. Um, and so it's, and, and culturally as a person who is not, um, from, it wasn't brought up in a Middle Eastern culture and didn't have a ton of exposure to that growing up. Um, some of the cultural norms are a little bit different to observe and it's, it can be, it's sometimes hard to know exactly what I'm looking at and how to intake all of that information because the culture is unlike my own. And so, um, what I perceive to be as kind of chaotic and, um, hard, it, it, I, I think it's an accurate reflection of their experience, but, um, some of the interactions are also very different among the families. And so it's also been a very interesting learning experience as a person who, um, is kind of having this first exposure to a different culture. I'm sure. Um, and I'm sure that there's both the relief of them feeling maybe that they're safe, but also the sadness of having to leave everything behind. So it's probably got a lot of mixed emotions happening within the communities there. Absolutely. It's um, really, I think, so important to have this conversation so that other people can understand and see like the real time of what's actually going on. It's, you know, there's not that many people that I know that have the inside um, information the way that you have really been able to observe and witness this firsthand. So I just really appreciate you being able to like both share this information and then kind of broaden what we are perceiving is actually happening in the world outside of just watching news footage. Um, so thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) As best I can. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, I feel really lucky to be able to be sharing this and to be hearing this myself and um, just expanding my knowledge as well. Um, um, So let's turn the conversation to the military mission Allied Refuge and what that has looked like, uh, both in the successes, the concerns, the efforts, and, you know, what you can share with us about that mission in general And then maybe we'll, from there, turn the conversation to what we were originally talking, going to talk about, which is sort of the women's comprehensive health. So let's start with that just to kind of create, um, you know, a foundation for this conversation so that listeners understand really about the mission itself. Yeah, absolutely. So Operation Allies Refuge is the name of the U.S. military operation to airlift at-risk Afghan citizens um, who aided during our time in Afghanistan. Um, So that is kind of the name of this particular um, mission. Um, In this mission, 122,000 people have been airlifted out of Afghanistan. Um, And while there are many more people who are still seeking refuge, those are the people that are having to cross borders and kind of do that on foot um, as the Taliban kind of reclaims power in Afghanistan following our our exit. Um, So evacuated Afghans have been taken. um, We've seen them here in Germany. I've had the opportunity to work with them here in Germany and to kind of work in that capacity as a volunteer. But they've also been airlifted to Qatar Bahrain, Kuwait, the United Arab Arab Emirate, Saudi Arabia, Spain, and Italy. And these are all of the places that they are going prior to going to the United States. Um, And so when we say camps, I think it's, it's oftentimes a really big trigger word for people because we think of like, oh, a camp. These camps are designed to be short term placement as they're being processed into the United States because we, we saw what we saw in the news. It was a very chaotic um, kind of exit. And it's it, we saw all of the footage of people kind of bum rushing the airport and fearing for their life. We saw all of that. And that is a very accurate reflection of my understanding of what was happening on the ground. That is not a sensationalized view. I think at the height of this exit, they were getting C-17s, which are huge planes. Just to kind of paint a picture, these are planes that take tanks. Like they can... They can fly a tank. So they're, they're enormous airplanes. They were getting these airplanes full of bodies well past capacity off the ground of roughly every 46 minutes, which is wow. super fast. Wow. Um, that's, re- <laughs> that's really quick. Um, 
And so they had to find a place to take all of these refugees, travelers, um, to be processed. Now, everyone that has been received um, is supposed to be people and their families who are at risk due to their involvement and aid to the United States during our time in Afghanistan. But because of all the chaos that we saw in the news, how quickly this exit took place, we have to verify that all of these people that are coming into the United States are amongst our allies. Um, and so these camps are intended to be short-term placement as they're being processed into our country. So being that, you know, as I'm kind of talking through this, um, some of the information I'm giving you is stuff that I've seen. And then some of this information of the, is this the information that we have is like dinner table talk because the families that I'm connected to, the people that I'm friends with are all the green suitors. They're the people who are actually working at the camps who have been deployed to work on this particular mission set. And so it's kind of a conglomerate of information coming from the people who are have more privileges and more responsibility in the camp as well as from volunteers. Um, but my understanding is that as we as we brought all of these people in, we were because we were able to bring in so many people so quickly, many of these camps, these temporary camps were filled well past capacity. Um, mm, and wow. there was a lot of logistical pieces that went into this. I think, um, so for instance, UNICEF lists Afghanistan as one of the um, countries with the poorest sanitation worldwide. Um, mm -hmm. Only 34% of the country has adequate sanitation within their homes and, and where they live. So one of the things that we, it's my understanding we were seeing at the camp is that we had brought in plumbing, we had brought in toilets, but a number of the people that were evacuated had never used a toilet. So they didn't actually know how to use it. So we had provided all of these porta potties, but they didn't know how to use the porta potties. And so they were um, doing their business, defecating behind the porta potties because they knew how to squat. They didn't necessarily know how to use some of the, the pieces that we had brought in for them, um, which created some hygiene issues, um, as well as kind of providing adequate shower facilities in, in consideration to their modest culture and how to kind of address some of their needs of not having mm -hmm. adequate clothing and how do we how do we get them cleaned and washed when they don't have a second set of clothing, but they're a very modest culture. Um, addressing some of that, we had, um, and, and still one of the problems that they're still facing, even though it's, it's five weeks later, is that a number of the women that were evacuated are pregnant. And so mm. we've still got um, out at some of the camps, they're out on airline, like flight, flight paths. So it's like knocked out the, some of these flight lines ability to run flights through, but a number of these women came pregnant. And so we've got women that are having babies in some of these temporary camps and, and trying to provide aid to that and in wow. respect to how their culture runs. And so there's been, it's a, it's been, um, this is a mission that it's a very large ship that, that has been, I think, hard to steer. And I think given the kind of the nature of what has been accomplished, it's been done very well, but there is a lot of moving pieces that have been, um, that have been had to have had to be navigated with a certain level of like troubleshooting intact. <laughs> yeah. And it's like really interesting when you are kind of overviewing some of these concerns because they're not things that would pop into my mind. You know, they are, right. You know, they are very, culturally specific and country specific. And it's, it's just really powerful. And, you know, I've had chills a few times just listening to you talk about this particular question because, or this particular topic, because it's just such real human stuff. Like this is, this is real struggle. This is real yeah. problem solving. This is down to the nitty gritty of like, making sure these people have what they need. And it's, 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 it's incredible to have your insight on this. So thank you. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, I think, um, we, we come from a certain walk of life and we can become very comfortable in that walk of life. And what I've seen on the ground is that this is loving without assumption. Um, and so 
we're having to kind of rethink the assumptions we've made. It's a fair assumption to think that we can put a porta potty out and people know how to use a porta potty. Right. Turns out it's not. <laughs> Turns right. out it's not. And so it's learning how to um, gracefully and tact- tactfully meet the needs of people whose needs are different than our own. Um, yeah. And so it's been a lot of, um, from all levels of leadership, kind of troubleshooting, like, okay, we hadn't thought of like kind of some of these unique needs <laughs> and how Absolutely. do we how best meet them? Yeah. Wow. So incredible. And so just, you know, just interesting to just remove those assumptions and get the real story. So yeah, it's incredible. So I know that you and I spoke a little bit about some of the women's health challenges within these camps. And you mentioned obviously women having babies. Um, I know that there is a, a pretty big need for underwear, feminine hygiene products and hajibs. And I would just love to know a little bit more about each of those, because even though they all kind of fall under a similar category, they have different nuances within them. So can you speak to this? Because this, this is uh, just a really important part of, you know, what we can do to, to be of service and to help. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, before I jump into a couple of these like things, I want to honor the fact that like, I'm still in my learning zone. And I I mentioned that because I'm like really hoping that like listeners feel encouraged to be in their learning zone, because sometimes I think if we like, don't talk about the fact that we're also learning other people don't like feel encouraged to learn. So there are some certain things that I'm like still learning about. So I don't know that I make the best advocate, but I'm going to do the best I can. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And it's all, it's good. Like this is a situation where clearly there's everyone's in their learning zone because even this mission doesn't understand the fact that these people don't know how to use porta potties. So, you know, I think it's like across the board, a major learning curve here that, you know, so it's yeah, perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, as I was kind of learning about the needs of, um, women in these, in, in these camps, not only as they were transitioning from their country into these kind of temporary camps, but also learning kind of the full life cycle of what this is going to look like for families as a whole, um, from the time that they go to camps to the, to the U S, um, some of, I, I had to kind of like up my own cultural competence. So when we were originally looking at like feminine hygiene, we thought to ourselves, okay, like we're going to give them like the whole gamut. We're going to do the diva cup. We're going to do the tampons. We're going to do the pads. Like we're going to do the whole thing. They don't want any feminine hygiene that is um, inserted. Um, they stick strictly to pads. And so that was, that was something definitely new to learn um, because that was, it kind of went back to the porta potty situation, like, oh, okay, pads it is, um, because of of kind of their modest culture and 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 even just a level of familiarity. Yeah. Um, it's my perception that they probably don't have tampons. Um, I haven't asked that explicitly, but we need more pads. Um, and so, kind of addressing that has been one thing. There has been a the army has done, the army and the red cross has done a really good job of meeting that particular need. Um, but other things that we're actually needing are, um, underwear, of course. So when we donate, one of the problems that we've seen at the donation sites is that people are taking their household items and they're donating and it's kind of lacking a certain level of, um, cultural competency for the particular mission set. Because the thing is, is people don't need your old prom dress. They also don't need your Christmas tree. They don't celebrate Christmas. They don't need a prom dress. <laughs> what they need is some of those basic items, but the basic items that they're used to wearing and using are not the same as ours. And so we're oftentimes donating from a place of our own comfort, um, jeans that no longer fit, sweaters that have gone out of style. And that's great. It's great to provide them some of those useful items, but Afghan women wear long leggings because they wear them underneath their kind of longer dresses with long sleeves. They don't wear t-shirts. Um, and we oftentimes don't think of donating underwear because we don't donate used underwear. We oftentimes pull from our closet items that we're no longer using. We stick them in a bag and we drive them to a site. But there's been a massive shortage of underwear because we don't donate used 
underwear. And we probably don't have new ones in our home that we just throw in the bag. And so providing underwear has been a big thing kind of across, um, across like all ages and genders, but you know, to get into the really intimate details of this, like we as women need fresh panties. Our organs work a little different. Like we self-clean a little different. So we're mm-hmm. in, in response to our, the way we're built, our cycle, we need panties. Like <laughs> they're very intimately tucked up in our space. So we need more of them. Um, and there has been a, a, just a true shortage of, of providing those just general undergarments to, to keep clean. Um, which so- just provides anyone that kind of health. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. We all need those. And I think that one point that you taught me in our conversation last week was that there's also, there's the comprehensive health issue. There's a sanitation issue. There's a comfort issue, but there's also a sexual safety issue. And I, you know, I hadn't thought of that. And I just, do you have anything you speak to about that? That just really struck a chord with me. So in terms of the sexual safety issue that, um, providing modest items, and this becomes, this becomes one of those conversations that I, I have had to really think through how to delicate, delicately have the conversation because as we get into this conversation, we're, we're treading a really close line of getting into victim blaming, which is something that as it becomes a very culturally sensitive topic because then we're starting to look at cultural nuance of how, um, what is appropriate within Islamic culture, within Muslim families, um, and then starting to get into some of those, those pieces that get into modesty and victim blaming and how the culture interacts. Um, providing modest items um, and providing religious appropriate items such as a hijab and modest underwear is important because it helps to provide comprehensive safety by allowing them to remain within their own set of social values. Um, this, this is also something that is extended to the hijab. So the hijab is an important part of the social system in Islam. It's part of their basic principles for both men and women to ensure honor and dignity. Um, So in turbulent times, ensuring the social structure can function as close to normal as possible helps to reduce stress and create safety, not only in transitional settings, but for the individual to create safety for their own sense. And so that's where I kind of get into the the sense of wanting to steer clear of victim blaming because the hijab and, and these modest items, these modesty items that are traditional to the kind of the Islamic religion are, are something that is an individual choice. It's both an individual choice as well as a group choice. And so providing these items helps to not only maintain that sense of social security and social order, but it allows people to continue to, to engage their values as they see fit, which helps to provide safety within their social dynamics within these camps and as they're transitioning into a new culture. It helps them to provide not only safety within their own culture according to their own values, but it also helps them to create their own sense of safety as they are migrating through cultures that are not their own. Yeah. So interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. I think sometimes we take for granted, like, you know, is the hijab necessary when they're in this crisis of fleeing their country. And, you know, of course we don't understand the depths of that, but it's an interesting thing to just take stock around honoring these items and these traditions and these cultural norms that are not only making them feel at home and comfortable with themselves, but also taking it even into a deeper layer, you know, around their modesty and their safety and things like that. So it's, it's an enlightening thing to understand, to to hear about. Um, Yeah. I I think that sometimes when we think about providing aid, sometimes we take the mentality of, well, we've provided them everything that they need as if we've given them something, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're, they're fed, they've got water, they've got a roof over their head, you know, their basic necessities are being met. And yes, 
in terms of um, their survival needs being met, yes, those needs are being met. But that's where cultural nuance comes into play. If if somebody tells me that I may not necessarily understand the hijab, I don't wear one. It's never been part of my own cultural culture or faith system. But if I'm being told that that is something that's important for somebody's um, safety in their own sense of self and within their society and culture, then I have to believe them because I don't understand how their culture works. And so part of respecting people is respecting them the way they want to be respected. I think it goes, it goes past the golden rule. So I think um, when we look at how we treat people, we're oftentimes taught to treat people the way we would like to be treated. But I think what's important in, in this is that we learn to treat others the way they would like to be treated. And so I think, you know, for, for them, um, for, our, you know, our Afghan travelers, this is a really important piece to providing them kind of that comprehensive safety as we may not understand some of the norms within their culture. Um, I think, you know, self-determination is really important. And it's my understanding that wearing the hijab is something that is elective for women within their culture, but it also plays a really important societal role in creating, you know, harmony, safety, upholding their values. And so I think that debate has been really common, you know, is it necessary? Well, if they're telling me it's necessary and it's part of their religious, their religious practices and their family practices, then yeah, it's necessary. Great. Yeah. And that's where we kind of honor cultural nuance. Thank you for that. That's, um, it sounds like a very important distinction. Yeah. All right. So I know that we have many of these um, Afghan refugees and or neighbors coming to the U.S. And there's a lot of different ways that we can welcome them and prepare for this um, transition. And I think you told me about 100,000 people are about to arrive here um, and and how we can still focus on issues that are integrating women's health, what organizations that support these women, how we can donate and how we can act welcoming in general. And I know that was kind of a wordy question, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can find our, our, our groove here as, um, as listeners are like, what can we do? We're preparing for these people to arrive in the U S when are they going to get here and what can we do for them? Absolutely. So there's a couple ways in which we can be really welcoming to our, our new neighbors. Um, and the first is just take the time to read about the culture of our new neighbors. Take the time to kind of learn, to develop cultural competence. Um, I, I'm having to do it as I'm volunteering over here. I'm having to do it. Um, it's a little uncomfortable because I'm realizing that there's, I've got a lot of opportunities for growth as an individual to be a better neighbor to my to the people that I share this world with. Um, and I think one of the really important things that people can do as we prepare for neighbors is just be prepared for the fact that we do have new neighbors. Um, 95,000 to 100,000 are going to be migrating to the U.S. Uh, by 2022. And um, this is going to be a huge adjustment for them. Our Afghan neighbors come from a country that is 99.7% Islamic. So it's it's a, it's a Muslim country. Um they're migrating to a country that is only 1% Muslim. Um, and we've, we, we don't have a lot of, it's going to be a new culture entering a new culture and it, it's going to be an adjustment for all, all parties involved. Um, and so developing cultural competence is, is the first thing. The second thing I think is that donating is really important. Um, but doing so thoughtfully is important. Um, it's not, while it's, um, while we can give ourselves a pat on the back for donating whatever it is we have in the house, we can do a better job than just kind of like siphoning off our crap. <laughs> we can be thoughtful in, in providing items that are needed. So hijabs, underwear, baby items are going to be so essential, but also items that you would want to put your own children in. Like we don't, just because people need an item doesn't mean that they want an item that's, you know, dirty or worn out or has holes. 
Um, we've, again, we've got people coming from all walks of life from their life coming and they're starting with really effectively nothing. And so providing them with things that provide them comfort and familiarity pads, um, soaps, pretty items, not just things that are worn out, but not prom dresses and wedding dresses and, and, um, you know, Christmas trees, providing some of those items that provide familiarity is going to be essential to being able to give them good support. A couple other ways that people can get involved is if they're wanting to donate money, alliedrefuge.org is a great way to provide monetary support right now to the thousands of people that are still over here in, in the EU. Um, that money is being used to meet the imminent needs that we have over here in these camps. And as a person who has worked in these camps, I can tell you, we are super short supplied on winter coats and it is getting cold over here and they're sleeping in tents and we need them for kids. We need them for adults. We need them for women. Um, we are desperately short on underwear and socks. We are desperately short on children's items, pants, all of those things. So providing that monetary support makes sure that that money gets to someone who is able to best see the issues at hand and address them. Um, but for our neighbors that are incoming now, another great way to get involved is if you're interested in opening up your home, if you've got a space that a family can live temporarily, Airbnb.org is running a really amazing program right now where you're able to open up your home to the refugees that are going to be taking solace in all 50 states. There are states that are going to be taking more than others. California, New York, and Texas are earmarked for the largest group of incoming people, but all states, I believe except for three, are are earmarked to take in a number of refugees. So wherever you live, there really will be an opportunity to get involved and to open up your home or to provide goods. And lastly, to find out what's going on in your kind of immediate area, a great way to start is to call your local representative and ask about what programs are being opened up in your area so that they can direct you to to where where you can get involved in your local community. Amazing. So basically, we've got the alliedrefuge.org where we can donate money that will then be directed to the camps in the EU and be providing these items in need. That's like a really immediate way of supporting um, these people that are displaced from their country and their homes. Um, And then in the US, we can look into Airbnb if we have available space to open up to some of the people coming um, in the coming months. And yeah. Okay, great. So those are two really different and really active ways to be involved. And, um, and then we'll drop the allied refuge, um, dot org information in the show notes and people can go there to click and donate directly on their website. Is that the best way? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Taylor, I feel incredibly grateful to have had you here today sharing these real time experiences with us. It's just an incredible opportunity to learn more about what's going on directly from, you know, real time sources. And, um, and I appreciate all of your insight and research and all the things that you're doing to inform yourself as you, you know, kind of go along on this journey as well, because I know that that's also been something that has taken a lot of time and energy for you to be researching and learning and, you know, trying to keep up with what's actually going on within the Afghan culture. So I am so glad to have had this conversation. And if there's um, any other details, we can go ahead and put them in the show notes um, so people have the opportunity to do a little bit more clicking and donating. And, um, and thank you so much for, for your insights. And I also just want to say that for listeners, you know, going over to visit Taylor's uh, really amazing blog and podcast at Policy Out Loud is a great, great way to understand her and her work a little bit more and like the, uh, the good work she's doing in the world. Policyoutloud.com. 
policyoutloud.com. And that's all the social, that's everywhere you can find me is at policyoutloud.com. So thank you so much, Sue, for having me. It's been such an honor to be able to, to come on the show and kind of talk about it because you kind of, I mean, you look at the world today and you think to yourself like, oh, I want to be part of the solution. And then you go out and you be part of the solution and you think to yourself, like, there's no way to, like, how do we talk about the value that is contributed when there's no monetary attachment to it? And how do we talk about how we participate in this world um, more effectively and more intentionally and create, you know, good that creates good. And so I've had such a fun time having the opportunity to come on your show and talk about this, you know, as, as this has been evolving, it's, it's felt very, um, I felt like I've spent a lot of time in my learning zone, but it's also just been one of those things where it's like, how do you talk about what you're seeing? Like, how do we give this information to more people so that they can also feel like they're participating in this because it's, it's a unified effort on all fronts. And so I've had, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to, to come on your show and, and talk about that. And thank you for inviting me and and for your plug on my, on my, on my page, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm growing. So I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Well, you're doing amazing work in the world and you are amazing. And I love your voice and your writing and your podcast and everything you're doing. So I'm just so glad we were able to, to realize that this topic, um, we could bring it together with both of our different focus points and intermingle. So thank you so much. And I will, I've been so honored to know you and all the beauty that you're bringing forth too. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about what this means for all of our listeners. (laughs) Yay. Well, awesome. I am so glad to have you and I will be in, in touch as usual. Thank you so much. Okay.